Well, that's amazing. Not only could I hear every word of that hymn, but I could hear amen at the end. And amen. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be here at Southwestern Seminary. I arrived late last night in a beautiful, crisp Fort Worth evening and uh, arrived on this beautiful campus. And as always, I consider it a tremendous privilege to be here. Um, one form of an irresistible call is that from Dr. Paige Patterson <laughs> when he invites you to chapel at Southern Southwestern Seminary. And uh, so when I received that call, I responded. And uh, my uh, calendar had to give way uh, to the fact that I would make a priority to be here simply because Dr. Paige Patterson invited me. And uh, I would urge you to, uh, to make that a motto of your life. <laughs> your life will go easier, I can assure you, uh, if you make that a motto of your life. I was elected president of the Southern Seminary in 1993. That's 25 years ago. Soon to finish 25 years as president of the Southern Seminary. And, and what's so shocking about that to me, honestly, is that I can remember when I couldn't imagine being 25, uh, much less spending 25 years in, in such a calling. What a privilege it has been. But the older I get and the longer I live, the more aware that I am that I did not bring myself here. And amongst those who have meant the most to me from the time I was a very young man is the titan who serves as president of this seminary, who has been for me such a dear friend and a, a friend who has added so much to my life, at times added a bit of drama to my life, <laughs> uh, but has always added strength and courage and conviction. The older, the older I live, the greater the numbers of my age, the more I am aware that we live off of each other's courage. And at times, we ride on each other's conviction. And uh, one of the greatest gifts in my life along the way has been Dr. Paige Patterson, who has been so courageous and so convictional and, uh, and so happy along the way. I was talking to someone the other day, and I said, here's his problem. That man would be happier losing than other people would be winning. And it's because he has an eschatology. That, by the way, is the difference. In, in, in this life, you can be happy losing if you have an eschatology. And, well, there's joy in this. In this. And it was 40 years ago this year. Some of you, no doubt, have noted that the 40th anniversary of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy comes this year. It was in 1988 that evangelical scholars gathered together. And uh, the alarm had already been sounded on the compromises to the truthfulness of Scripture. But... It's extremely important in God's providence that it was 40 years ago that that statement was determined in the midst of a controversy within evangelicalism, which, by the way, never seems to go away. And it was the very next year that the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention gained its first major electoral victory. And so far as I know in church history, there is nothing like it. So far as I know, in the history of American churches and denominations, there's nothing like it. 
And we must never assume that this just happened. It happened by God's grace. It happened for God's glory. It happened by God's spirit. It came about on the authority and truthfulness of God's word. But the great defense of the inerrancy of scripture also took men willing to put their lives on the line. And uh, Dr. Paige Patterson was one of those who was there in 1988 helping to frame that statement and was there in 1979 helping to recover the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, is here now. You know what a privilege it is to study on this campus. You know what a privilege it is to study with this distinguished faculty. You know what a privilege it is to be with such a student body in such a place. You will look back one day and if the Lord tarries and you live long enough and you remain faithful, then you will tell your grandchildren stories about your years at Southwestern Seminary. So look forward to that. And by the way, grandchildren are just about perfect. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you that. I, uh, I, I was looking, Mary and I have been looking forward to this rather insanely for some time. Some of you in this room already know what I'm talking about. Others of you just tune me out for a moment. But uh, this is, uh, we're just obnoxious, Mary and I. We just, we just own it. We're just, uh, we're just obnoxious grandparents. But I had a great Southern Baptist moment about this. When Katie was expecting our, our first grandchild, I could say her first child, but that actually takes a back seat to being our first grandchild. <laughs> when, when she was expecting uh, our, our first grandchild, we were at the Southern Baptist Convention, and I was going up an escalator, and a dear Southern Baptist lady, whom I do not know but knew me, was going down an escalator. And as we met about halfway in the convention center, she turned to me, and in a, in a moment of grandparent joy, she turned to me and said, I hear Katie's expecting. And I said, yes. And she said, grandchildren are the only things that ever deliver on their promises. And she was very excited about that. Then she got down to the bottom of the escalator and she caught herself and in a great Southern Baptist moment raised her hands and said, Dr. Muller, Dr. Muller, set for Jesus, set for Jesus. And uh, okay, so I, I, got, I got that. Yeah. And uh, I actually know exactly what she means. My privilege here in the stewardship of this moment is to preach. And I invite you to turn with me to Malachi 2. I will preach this morning from the prophet Malachi and the second chapter. Such a joy to be here in the hospitality of this institution. But what a great joy to be in a place where preaching is prized. And the word of God is honored. And the task of preaching is revered. The text is Malachi 2, verses 4 through 8. And I will ask that you will stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Malachi the prophet, chapter 2. Verses 4 through 8. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. We will stop there and pray for God's blessing upon this hour. Father, we pray that you will use this text to your glory 
to grip our hearts and not let us go. May we be established ever more firmly and joyfully in the task of preaching, and may your spirit even now use this text in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. A sermon from one of the minor prophets. That's a regrettable borrowing from the Latin. All the minor meant was shorter. But it has come with the implication in English that we have major prophets and minor prophets. We just have prophets who have longer books and prophets who have shorter books. There are no minor prophets. Amongst the prophets of God in the Old Testament, we know remarkably little about Malachi. His name means my messenger. The background to the text, the historical references would indicate that Persia is in the background of the historical moment when Malachi was used of God to deliver his prophecies. Malachi is one of the most neglected of all of the Old Testament books. But in this text that has gripped my heart for so long, I believe we see the portrait of the preacher. A portrait of a preacher from Malachi chapter 2. Now, as we look at this text, you see it, it begins, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand. Well, what is this covenant with Levi? We, we know of the covenant with Abraham. We know of the covenant with Moses. We know of the Davidic covenant. We certainly know of the new covenant, Christ. What is this covenant with Levi? Is, is, is this a covenant that we've overlooked? Is this, a, is this a covenant that has no biblical reference? A covenant that we, that we know not of? Well, first of all, Levi. The fact that here you would have a reference to a covenant with Levi takes us back to Levi. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 34. A moment of horrible judgment upon Levi, as you'll recall in that passage. From Genesis 34, we would have no reckoning that there would be a covenant that God had made with Levi. But then, of course, we have not only Genesis 34, we also have Exodus 32 and Deuteronomy 33. And there you will recall that it is the tribe of Levi who stood out in faithfulness in contrast to others in the incident of the idolatry with the golden calf. And of course, you think of Phineas, who is a model of faithfulness, even as Levi himself had been a model of unfaithfulness. And you have the rise of the Levitical priesthood, and we come to understand that God did have a purpose through Levi and a covenant that is referred to as the covenant with Levi himself. We can have a text like Numbers chapter 25, where we see that very perpetual priesthood. In Numbers chapter 25, looking at verse 10, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So there is the covenant that God references in Malachi chapter 2. We see further reference in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 33. Look at verse 17. 
For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. So there's the perpetual covenant that God has made with Levi, and in the midst of Malachi's prophecy against the corruption of both the people and the priesthood in his day, in the middle of that, we find the portrait of a preacher that begins with this affirmation and reminder about the covenant with Levi, a perpetual covenant. Now, you'll also notice that in the very beginning of the prophecy, we have a tremendous definition of the preacher. We actually see the portrait of the preacher in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. And it is made clear to us more than anything else, in prepositions. Malachi 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Where's the portrait? Where's the job description of the preacher? It's right there. Look at the prepositions. It is the oracle of the word of the Lord. What is the task of preaching? It is to preach not our word, not any word, not anyone's word, but the word of God. It is the oracle of the word of the Lord. The next preposition, to, to Israel. Preaching is not about the preacher, it's not for the preacher. Preaching is for the people of God. It is for God's people. It is for Israel. So even as Malachi is here introducing himself and his prophecy to Israel, we see the portrait of the preacher and the fact that it is the word of God. It is for Israel, but it is by Malachi. That's the preacher's role. We're on the other side of by. Our role is to be the one through whom the oracle of the word of the Lord arrives to God's people. The preacher is the indistinctive, sometimes we have to say, but indispensable, more importantly, the indispensable link in getting the oracle of the word of the Lord to God's people. But there's more to it than this, and this is why we look to chapter 2. In chapter 2, even as in verse 4, we are reminded of the covenant with Levi and of the Lord's promise that it will stand, we come to understand how it is defined as a covenant with him of life and peace. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. I want to suggest to you that in this portrait of the preacher, we see the preacher's fear. We see the preacher's walk, and we see the preacher's task. The preacher's fear, the preacher's walk, and the preacher's task. First of all, fear. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. We saw that in Numbers. And, and notice the elegance of the Lord's statement here. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. The Lord keeps his covenant. The Lord establishes the covenant. The Lord keeps his covenant. My covenant with him was life and peace. Two of the most precious words in all of scripture. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. But follow, it was a covenant of fear and he feared me. One of the defining and lamentable dimensions 
of the church today is the absence of fear. The fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord, we are reminded, is the beginning of wisdom. The, the fear of the Lord is righteous altogether. But you wouldn't know that from so many contemporary churches. You would have no hint of that in so much contemporary worship. There would be no notion of a God who is feared. And then, of course, you have those who will rush and say, well, the word's there, but of course it can't mean what it appears to mean. It doesn't mean we'd actually fear the Lord. It just means kind of respect him. Well, no, actually it means fear him. God kills people. Uh, perhaps you've noticed, but God kills a remarkable number of people. It's amazing how many people in the Old Testament and in the New, it, God slayed him. And, and that's just a picture of the wrath that is to come. Jesus said, fear not the one who can destroy the body. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. What, what should be the rightful response of the sinner to an infinitely holy God? Fear. Now, is that all there is to it? No, of course that's not all there is to it. Martin Luther distinguished between two different kinds of fear. He said the first kind of fear is a servile fear. And the second he called a filial fear. This helps a lot. A servile fear is the, is, is the fear of a tyrant. A filial fear is the fear of, of a father. And that's the biblical kind of fear. It's, it, 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 it's not that we fear one who hates us. We fear the one who hates our sin. And who will pour out his wrath upon sinners? But by the grace of God, and especially by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we rightly fear him as a child rightly fears the Father. It's a filial fear. By God's grace, as joint heirs with Christ, it's a, it's a fear that brings forth indeed respect, but beyond respect, it brings forth reverence. Notice how the text goes on. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. Now, now notice again the accomplishment, the, the language that is used here. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. How is that defined? He stood in awe of my name. You know, we have an absence of fear. Soren Kierkegaard, by the way, said that modern people don't fear, they merely have anxiety. But we also have a nearly incalculable deficit of awe. And, and, and fear and awe are not unrelated. Just think of Isaiah chapter 6. That call passage when Isaiah went into the temple and he saw the vision of the Lord high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. And he heard the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What is Isaiah's rightful response? It, it can, it's an experience that can only be described as awe. And his rightful response is to understand that he is living amongst a people of unclean lips and he is a man of unclean lips. How does he know this? For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you one of the key problems in humankind. Most human beings, I think it's very safe to say, have never experienced even an instant of awe. Not one. 
And I, I want to turn to Christians and say, how many Christians alive today have ever experienced genuinely a moment of awe? We have exchanged awe for the spectacular. And the spectacular can be orchestrated. The spectacular can be designed. The, the spectacular can be humanly initiated. And the spectacular happens and the spectacular goes away. But we don't orchestrate awe. Awe happens. And, and we actually don't initiate awe. You can't say, I'd like to schedule a moment of awe for Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. That's when I'd like my awe delivered. And No, awe happens. Isaiah didn't orchestrate what happened in Isaiah 6 that day in the temple, nor do we. But we should pray that we experience awe. How's that going to happen for us? Well, if we seek it the wrong way, our theology will be woefully distorted, and so will our worship. How would awe come? Well, it comes by what we would rightly call the ordinary means of grace. It comes to believers because God visits his people. It comes in the preaching of God's word. Rightly understood, what happens in preaching should bring about awe. Truly, awe. Let me give you a preacher's awe. Let me give you the awe that should be on the congregation. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, you have that amazing passage where Moses is getting the children of Israel ready for the conquest. And he takes them back to the mountain that shook with fire and was covered with smoke and the mountain that was holy and trembled, which they and even their animals dared not touch. He takes them back to when God spoke to them from out of the clouds of the mountain. And he reminded them, we heard God speak. We heard his voice. And then later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he asked this amazing question. He asked this. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? It's an astounding question. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived? It's one thing to hear the God, the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire. That's one thing. That's, that's all enough. But the amazing thing is, Israel heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire and survived. Okay, so what happens in preaching? Okay, this is what happens. Brothers, when you preach, what happens? You get to preach the inerrant, infallible, verbally inspired, always trustworthy, always true, ever living, sharper than any two-edged sword, word of God. And usually you get to eat lunch after. How astounding is this? You get to preach the inerrant, infallible word of God and live. Now, what's amazing about that? What's amazing about that is we're not competent for this. What's amazing about that is we're inadequate vessels. What are we? We're earthly vessels for this. Earthly vessels, that is no compliment, brothers. We are earthly vessels. And not only that, we are never going to out-preach a text. It can't happen. We're never going to exhaust a text. No sermon we ever preach on any text will be adequate for that text. No sermon we ever preach will cause awe in heaven. But God lets us preach his word to his people and eat lunch. 
And what about the congregation? The congregation gets to hear God speak. Through the preaching of the word, the congregation hears the voice of the creator of the entire cosmos, the Lord of hosts, gets to hear his voice as alive as Israel heard his voice there at the foot of the mountain and survive. Our people go home as if this was a useful investment of an hour. Gotta go home with the self-consciousness of survivors. Oh, look, honey, you got all the kids in the car? Count them. Okay, we got everybody? Okay, we're all survivors. Once again, a Lord's day, and we survived. Because that's the truth. That's the truth. And, and you know, we as human beings apparently have a very low capacity for awe. We can't, we can't hold awe for long. And... Uh, well, it's, it's, it's puzzling to me. In Second Peter, Peter speaks of being eyewitnesses of the divine majesty. He speaks of being there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He speaks of the revelation by the Father of the Son. He even speaks of, the, again, the, the revelation that came by the divine majesty. Now, now, we know that when they were there, they didn't want to leave. You'll recall the passage. And they, they, they wanted to stay there on the mountain. But, of course, they were not allowed to stay there on the mountain. And instead, they, they went back. And as you read the Gospels, it's clear they went back to life. How does that happen? Now, how could you be there at the Mount of Transfiguration? How could you see Moses and Elijah? And in here, what was said about Christ the Son, how could you be there on the mountain of the revelation of the divine majesty and then take a nap? That's a part of our finitude as human beings. They give out earthen vessels. There's a part of it right there. We don't hold all very long. We don't hold all very well. And so that makes preaching every time we preach all the more important. It is a one opportunity. It ought to be more often in a week. But for a lot of churches, it's one opportunity a week in which all might happen. And we pray that it will happen. And it's not about the skill of the preacher. And it's certainly not something that we can orchestrate other than the ordinary means of grace, which means preaching the word in season and out of season. Well, we come to understand the preacher's walk. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. And then skip down just a moment. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. Well, there it is, the preacher's walk. What, what should the preacher's walk look like? Well, what did the walk that God commends as he speaks to the prophet Malachi, what did that look like? It was a walk of peace and uprightness. Peace. In the New Testament, we are told to be at peace insofar as it is possible with all men. That doesn't mean avoiding all conflict. That's impossible. It doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't mean failing to act courageously and to intervene courageously when that is called for. It doesn't mean never to have enemies. 
That, that insofar as it is possible is very important. But it does mean that insofar as we get to determine what happens, what happens is peace. Insofar as we are present, because we are present, there should be the spirit of peace. And this just isn't the peace of the absence of, of, of violence or, or conflict. This is the peace which is the evidence of the presence of a redeeming God. Of peace. And, and then uprightness. Uprightness. Don't, don't skip over that. What does uprightness mean? It means living according to the law. It means holiness. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is a failure of holiness. It, it is a discrediting of sanctification. And what we are given in Christ is not merely salvation, it is also sanctification. And if that sanctification does not become progressively more evident, then we must make very certain that we have been saved. Where you find God's people, and especially where you find God's preacher, you must find peace and uprightness. The preacher leads by example. But finally, you see the preacher's task. After we read, he stood in awe of my name, then we hear true instruction was on his lips. It was found in his mouth. Not only that, no wrong was found on his lips. True instruction was in his mouth. You know, that better be the job description. Who are you looking for? The pulpit search committee, whatever they call themselves now. First line, we're looking for a man with true instruction in his mouth. First question they should ask, true instruction in your mouth? It had better be, because consider the peril if it is not. If true instruction is not in his mouth, then God's people will not hear God's word and they will not then obey and destruction will follow. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. How I pray that no wrong will be found on my lips. How, how, how dangerous, how horrifying would it be for wrong? to be found on our lips. Notice the responsibility of the congregation as the preacher. Look at verse seven. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. What are people to look for in a preacher? All kinds of things that pulpit search committees will tell you they're looking for in a preacher. Here's the one thing they had better be looking for. They had better be looking for a man with instruction, true instruction from his mouth. That's what they better be looking for. And, and they may find other things along with that. They will. But most churches, far too many, have a list of wants and desires about a preacher that might at some point include true instruction in his mouth and no fault on his lips, but that had better be the summary of everything they're looking for in a preacher. Because otherwise, preaching isn't going to take place. But as time is coming to a close, I want us to consider what we see in Malachi 1.1 and then in 2.7. The oracle by the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And look at the last words of that verse, chapter 2, verse 7, the summary of everything. For he 
The preacher is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. I can't tell you how many planes I've been on the last several days. I, uh, I understand why so many people tell stories of talking to people about Christ because they're sitting on an airplane because it's the only place I go regularly where someone is tied down next to me and can't leave. <laughs> and uh, it is a remarkable opportunity to talk about what you want to talk about. And they may turn away, but they can't jump out. And uh, I, I get that. But um, last night as I was coming here, I sat next to a man who uh, clearly, by the way he was presenting himself, was not likely to show up in one of our churches. And, uh, and I was preparing to be here with you after several days of instruction elsewhere, and I had my Bible on my lap when he came and sat down. He was one of the last on the plane, and it was clear he was looking for somewhere else to sit. But alas, it was too late. So he was friendly in his own way, and I initiated the conversation. I said, what do you do? And he told me what he did. And uh, just as a kind of natural reflex, he no doubt regretted. He, he said, what do you do? And you know, I was tempted to say, I'm a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Glad to meet you. Uh, that's a, what a business card that would be. Albert Moeller, messenger of the Lord of hosts. Website, contact information, email below. How dare we say that? How dare we not say that? If we've been called to preach, then brothers, this is, this is who we are. We are a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Uh, and you know, not in the same oracular sense that we have here in Malachi, in which he had that particular responsibility through whom God spoke what is for us divine revelation in God's inerrant and infallible word. But that word had better come out of our mouths in such a way that we are just as truly the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And, and what an amazing thing that is. That the Lord God, who is the Lord of hosts, who could speak to his creatures any way he might choose, chooses to speak to his redeemed people by a messenger whom he sends. The messenger of the Lord of hosts. You know, when the Lord calls you to serve a church, many of you are serving right now, many of you are preaching right now, God bless you, never pass up an opportunity to preach. And if you're a preacher and you're not preaching right now, you're not much of a preacher. Because you say, well, no church has called me to preach. Well, there's probably a reason for that. And, and part of that reason is you don't have any experience preaching. And I'll tell you right now, there are people in nursing homes who desperately need to hear a preacher. Don't tell me one day you're going to be a preacher if you're not preaching right now. There are people who need to hear a preacher. There are prisoners right now who need to hear a preacher. There are, there are 13-year-olds who desperately need to hear a preacher. If you're not preaching, you're not a preacher. But if you are preaching, then this is what you're doing. And to whomever you preach, a congregation large or small, or a congregation that doesn't even think of itself as a congregation yet. Here's what you're doing. What you're doing, it better be summarized as the oracle of the word of the Lord for them through you. 
That's the only reason you're there. That's the only reason we're here. And that's reason enough to do this until, I love the way that old African-American preacher put it. Speaking to young preachers, he said, one day, young men, you're going to die. And they're going to put you in a box. And they're going to dig a hole. And they're going to put the hole in the ground. They're going to kick dirt in your face and go back to the church and eat potato salad. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And so until they kick dirt in your face and go back to the church and eat potato salad, then give everything you are to be a messenger of the Lord of hosts until he calls you home. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that this portrait of a preacher from Malachi will become the explosive burden of the preacher's heart such that what you did then for your people, you will do now as you promised so to do. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.